Our scripture reading today is Luke 22, 39 to 53. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said, chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just love you. And we just, it's so hard to read these words about how you agonized in the garden on our behalf, Lord, and for what you were going to face at the cross. But we are so humbled and grateful, Lord, that you went there for us, that you died for our sins, and that you rose again. And God, I just pray that you would be with Grant as he brings your message to us today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Have a seat. Grab a Bible. Thank you, worship team. And Dan, thanks for being here. I love you, man. It's uh, God has knit our family's hearts together in a really special way, and it's good to, it's good to have you at Lighthouse. You feel like, feel like you belong here to me. Well, we looked at this some of the same passage last week as we, um, as we looked at, at Peter's, the night that Peter had. And Peter's night was terrible, and it was filled with failure, and it was filled with, with things that he would regret for the rest of his life. And today I would like to look at the night that Jesus had on the night that he was betrayed and look at some of these same passages. But Look at them instead of the failure and mistakes of Peter to look at the victory and the roadmap that Jesus has laid out for us. Because let me tell you something, trials are going to come. Now, I'm not a real big fan of like, like the sky is falling kind of preaching. You know, I, I don't know if it's just that I've been in church my whole life and you can only hear that so many times before you go, well, maybe it's fallen, but maybe I'll just let it hit me or something. I don't know. But it is foolhardy to think that trials are not going to come. In each of our lives, there are, this has been a very hard weekend for some of you, just with the power being out, maybe at your house for multiple days, people are suffering. There's trials like that, that just, 
are part of life, and there's also trials in each of our families, but there's a, a special kind of trial that we would be foolish to, to neglect the idea that this is going to be part of our lives, that at some point we're going to have to suffer for the gospel. In fact, I think you would look at the history of the church and go, Actually, the church thrives when it is having to suffer for the gospel. I'm sure Dan could tell us stories of all around the world where there are brothers and sisters in churches this morning uh, worshiping God, singing some of these same songs, reading some of these same scriptures who are really suffering for the gospel. And, and, and Jesus has laid out a path of victory in those trials. Trials are going to come. The question is going to be, how will we as the church handle those trials in our lives? And it makes me wonder, how are we conditioned by our culture to handle trials? One of the things that frustrates me most about all kinds of, and I don't know what to do about it because you got to sell stuff. I mean, we, you know, we don't want to collapse the whole economy all at once probably, but, but you know, everything, whether it's a sitcom or a YouTube video or anything that you are processing, there's almost always this sense of, like, I've just very rarely turned on any kind of, of media at all and heard about how peaceful and good the world's doing right now. It's almost always some kind of, like, conflict or some kind of something that's supposed to, to stir up my heart some way, even like comedy, you know? It's like, supposed, and then about every 10 minutes, you get a group of commercials so you could buy something that would calm your heart, right? It's like, hey, the world's, the world's uh, falling apart and everything's going bad. More after this break. You should really buy a Lexus. <laughs> and you should eat at this food, fast food place. And not only that, you should support this thing that's happening. Now, back to the world falling apart. And, there's, and I think we are sort of conditioned to handle trials by having enough by having more, more relationships, more stuff, more, more, more. Someday maybe I will be so insulated with people, things, and status that there won't be trials that will impact me anymore. Even when I say that, we know that's foolish, right? That's not going to work. There's no amount of surrounding myself with stuff or people or status that stops trials. So today we get to see Jesus in the ultimate trial. He is literally making a choice to follow the will of his Father, and we'll talk about this as we go, but his will too. And I think that that's one of the most difficult things in trials and temptations that we go through. It's that we are tempted not to do what we know is best, not only what God wants. So we see Jesus following the will of his Father unto death. We'll spend time, spending time this week with, with this text, the thing that just keeps being impressed upon me is simply how faithful Jesus is. But faithful in ways that really are examples to us. I mean, I say Jesus is faithful and we all go, yeah, no dir. We didn't have to be told Jesus is faithful. After all, he's Jesus. But this is not an after all, he's Jesus kind of text. Rather, we see Jesus in real pain, with real trials, and we see him really faithful in a way that is not only puts him as clearly 
the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb that is the sacrifice that makes, that rips open the curtain and makes it possible for you and I to have a relationship with God, but also as the perfect example of how a faithful human handles trials, tribulations in a relationship with God. He's faithful in his obedience to the Father. He's faithful in his discipleship to his followers, leaders, many of you leaders in many, um, in many ways. He, is, he continues to be faithful. I mean, I just imagine what I would have done if I came back and, and Peter and the rest of the disciples were asleep after agonizing in prayer. I know I wouldn't have woken them up. You know, I know I would have just been like, fine, I don't need these guys anyway. And yet he is faithful to them. He, he is faithful to live out what he has taught. We'll see that as we go. That he has told us how to live. And now in time of trial, he is living as he has taught. And I think it starts very early in the passage. It starts with the idea that Jesus has established habits of faithfulness before the time of trial. Verse 39 started and it said, and he came out and went. So that's out from the, the Last Supper, out from the upper room, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into, into temptation. As was his custom. I don't know exactly what that means. If Jesus was just such a man of prayer, and think about that. Jesus, the God-man, being a man of prayer, that what he craved, what his habit was, was time with his Father. And it had become such a habit. I don't know if this was like, oh, well, this is what we just do after dinner. We, when you eat with Jesus, you know what comes next. After dinner, we're going to go have a time of prayer. Or if the custom is referring to the place where, hey, when we're in Jerusalem, this is where we go. We go to the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. This is just where we go. This is what we do. This is our custom. But the point being that Jesus did not decide to build a custom of submissive prayer to God in his moment of trial, but rather this was a habit that he could rely on once he got to a time of trial. He had a custom as he came and went out, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. Jesus' prayer life did not begin in his moment of crisis. It was established, and it was something he could lean on in this moment. Like I said, I'm, I'm not a sky is falling kind of guy, but I know that there's going to come a time in your life, in my life, maybe in our life, where we're going to wish that we had a custom of established prayer. And I wish I had something more than pray and read your Bible to you today, but guys, if we have not established habitual customs of deep prayer and relationship with the Father, we won't have those to lean on. We'll be scrambling. We'll be worried. We'll be fearful when the time comes that we have to make hard choices where we're having to decide to obey God or not. And look, as I put it in those terms, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to decide to obey God or not. And you go, oh, well, that's by the end of the day. That's a constant trial. And this is simply where Jesus is. And he has a custom, he has a habit formed before the garden that he can now lean on in the garden. 
Luke says it was his custom to go to the Mount of Olives. Did anybody go, why is the Garden of Gethsemane not in here? Yeah, Luke doesn't use the term the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's a particular garden near the Mount of Olives. Luke, I think, wants to highlight that this is at the Mount of Olives because he sees this as eschatological. He sees this as Jesus being the one who would stand on the Mount of Olives and establish the kingdom of God. The Old Testament had talked about it in a couple of different places. And so Luke wants to say, look, Jesus in this trial is going to have to be obedient, is going to have to remain submissive to the Father, not just so he has a better day, Not just so we can make God happy, but rather there are big, big things at stake. This is the the eschatological, the end times, the eternal kingdom king having to go through a trial so that he could be our king. And he prays and he tells his disciples, pray that you may not enter temptation. We talked a lot about this last week, that that there were consequences for these guys not doing this. They, they were sad, they were exhausted, they fell asleep instead of praying. They don't pray that they might avoid temptation, and instead they fall headlong into temptation. They fall into the temptation of fear. They fall into the temptation of violence. Grab a sword, chop off an ear. They fall into the temptation of desertion. They desert Jesus in this moment. And I think Luke is writing in such a way where we see Jesus and what faithfulness looks like. And we see the disciples and what sleeping on the job looks like. And we go, look, in the moment, I get why they ran away. And in the moment, I see how it would have been really hard to pray like Jesus at this time. But then you look at the consequences of the next days and the next eternities. You go, oh my gosh, Jesus is the one making the better decision here by far. But there's more here to reflect on even than that. Jesus is teaching the disciples something, and we should pay attention. You know, this week I was just kind of Googling around and because and I was I was like, well, you know, I was trying to think what are the things that that like what are the times of trial for us as a as a culture and what naturally happens, like what is our you know, what naturally do humans do in times of crisis? And, you know, I came upon a blog, so you know it's absolutely true. Um, I think it's out of Berkeley, so, you know, take that for what it is. But, um, but it, it was, you know, it was very scientific, looking at human brains from a, from a, you know, human brain perspective. And I won't give you all 10, but it started with the first thing in times of, of uncertainty um, is that our, uh, our attention is what's at stake. And I think, man, it took somebody from Berkeley to go, yeah, in times of uncertainty, I have a hard time paying attention to the right things. That might be right. And I wonder if even in the garden, if that's what we're seeing, Jesus doing all he has to do, that his attention, that his focus, that his eyes might be pointed at the Father and at the Father's will. And the disciples in these uncertain times kind of turn into the keystone cops. Their hearts are good, man. They don't want to do bad things, but their attention is in all the wrong places. I wonder if it really is in times of trial, in times of uncertainty, it's, it's our attention that at least at part is what's at stake. So then this article I read was like, eight other things that happen. Okay, so your, your attention is important. The first one was amazing. It said, uh, your attention determines reality. And I go, oh, that's right. What you're paying attention to, that's what you feel like is going on. 
And then it had other points down the road. And then the the, the 10th point was your attention is trainable. I went, huh, that's not Bible. But man, that makes sense to me. It resonates with me. And spiritual disciplines, those are biblical. And the idea that Jesus would be such a man of prayer that he would teach his disciples to pray a prayer way back in the Sermon on the Mount that would sound an awful lot like this prayer he himself prays in the garden, that this training would be something that is training that in the time when I really need it, my attention will be able to remain on God. What are your habits? If this is in a time of trial, if you're having a time like that now, well, I bet you can tell whether or not you have habits built that keep your attention on Jesus. We should pay attention. We should learn how to pay attention. And keeping our attention on Jesus. And I think keeping our attention on God and avoiding temptation are maybe two parts of the the same discussion. I'm either going to be looking at like, oh, I'm afraid of what's coming, or I'm feeling selfish and needy and whatever, or I feel like I deserve this, or my attention is going to be, no, what I want in my life is to please God. That's actually what I want. I don't feel like God's making me do anything. I desire... I love him. I desire to please him. And if my attention's on there, it's a whole different thing. And it takes preparation. It takes training. It takes Christian maturity, which doesn't happen overnight. Now, I hear a lot of people start arguments with like, well, I'm a Christian. And that's not, that's like, you know, well, I'm a guitar player. Yeah, barely, you know, like, know a few chords. That's not the same as like, so I know everything about the guitar. You know what I'm talking about? Like what, this, the, what we see in Jesus here, and I know this is a strange thing to say, but what we see in Jesus here is just the ultimate mature man who has built a habit that now he can lean on in a time of super intense trials. Because the Goal is not to avoid trial. In fact, though it would be very different if Jesus' advice to his disciples was, hey, you need to do everything you can to avoid trials tonight, avoid difficulty tonight. It would have been, let's get out of here. We've all got family in Galilee. We've got homes up there. What are we doing here? He doesn't tell them avoid trials. He tells them pray that you would avoid temptation. And those are different, but they kind of happen at the same time a lot of times. That in times of trial, when life gets difficult, we are more vulnerable to temptation, to fall to sin. So Jesus had established these habits. Not only that, but Jesus prepared for this time of trial with prayers of submission. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. I read one commentator that I liked a lot this week who said a stone's throw roughly translates to over yonder. So he, he withdrew from them over yonder and knelt down and prayed. He knelt down. Look, this is not every Christian all the time, you have to do it, but just big brother to little brother kind of advice. What's your posture like when you pray? Because 
the God-man, when he was preparing, now let's not be legalist, but as he's preparing for the most intense trial of his life, took a submissive pose. Knelt. You know, they, they say uh, that James, half-brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James, that they called him old camel knees because he prayed on his knees so much that his knees were misshapen. I, I don't want to brag, but I've got funny-looking knees without all those hours of prayer. So, um, but this, is, this has just been the, the, the way of Christians for all time, that we would take postures that our bodies would be involved in submitting. So Jesus kneels because, and this is a big idea today, there's no victory without submission to God. Can I say that 17 more times? There is no victory without submission to God. There's no victory without submission to God. We all want victory. None of us want to submit. We all want wins. None of us want to die to ourselves. It's just not natural. We don't want to do it. So, he kneels down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father. He had taught the disciples when they had said, how should we pray? He said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And now in times of trial, in times of just the most intense difficulty of his life, Jesus is going to pray, Father. Again, there's a submission there. There's a care there. There's a, a putting himself under the will of the God of the universe there. This is how he taught us to pray. And this is how he himself prayed. And the structure of this little prayer is so, it's not lengthy. I bet you have it memorized. I bet you could just rattle it off, maybe not word for word, but you know. You know how it goes. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And that structure is something that you see all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called a chiasm. It's a little idea sandwich. And it starts with, Jesus submitting his will to the Father. Father, or seeking the Father's will. Father, if it's in your will, and it ends with him submitting his will, but not my will, yours be done. And then in the middle is the, for lack of a better word, the prayer request. And I wonder if we are all about the middle and not about the top and the bottom of that. Maybe at the end of a lengthy prayer, we'll throw in, but not my will, but yours be done. But Jesus' heart is not to get his way. Jesus' heart is that he would be in line with the will of the Father. And if your prayer life goes from, how do I get the stuff I want out of God and goes instead to, God, how do I so align my will with your will that I'm at peace even in this time of trial? Well, that's a whole different idea about prayer in general. If you are willing, it starts, not my will, but yours be done. And in the middle, there's something about a cup. We talked about this uh, a few weeks ago when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and the language being so close together is just unmistakable and can't be ignored. That Luke mentions two cups in the Passover meal, the cup of deliverance, most probably in the cup of redemption, most probably. And so ready for this? 
The cup of redemption, it just, we just should take communion seven times a day. The cup of deliverance and redemption get poured out by Jesus and given to his disciples. So redemption and deliverance are things that Jesus like physically broke, poured out, gives to me and you that we hold in our hands when it comes to communion. We go, oh, I remember, see how this bread is all busted up? That's what happened to Jesus' body. This, this juice, it looks like blood. We're talking about a real man's blood here. Body and blood that Jesus gave to you, but what it cost him was this cup he talks about in the garden. So, so he, the three cups are deliverance and redemption, which is coming to you, and wrath, which is coming upon Jesus. As he says, Father, if it's at all possible, remove this cup from me. It is just exceedingly clear that he's using the word cup. I was even thinking this week that when we say anything about a cup, we always mean communion. We always mean redemption. We just, it's just the only cup we've ever been familiar with. But in Jesus' time, cup meant wrath. It was the wrath of God that was being poured out. It's in Isaiah, it's in Zephaniah, it's all over the place. But we have so appreciated the redemption of the cup of Christ that we have neglected what it cost him, the wrath of God. A few observations about this cup that Jesus is praying about and ultimately has to bear. First of all, this is the cup we earned. We'll have Good Friday here in a few weeks. Let's just have a little Good Friday right now. That the, the cup that Jesus is praying, God, this is the most intense trial of his life. And it actually belonged to us. Not only that, but it wasn't plan B. This was the plan from at least Genesis 3. The snake is about to deal a fatal blow to Eve's descendant. But in striking that blow, the snake is about to have his head crushed. Are you with me? In that original consequence of Adam and Eve's sin was a promise that there would be one who was dealt a fatal blow and yet from that would come eternal life. Would be the the one that crushed the head of Satan. And this is tonight. This is happening right here. It wasn't plan B. You know, a lot of times I think, and I, I wrestle with this. I don't know how, I, I don't want to nerd out too much and talk about atonement theory, but, but th there is some balance here where we go, <coughs> one way to describe uh, the, the, what happened on the cross is that God's wrath is, needs to be poured out on humanity. And in the middle of God just as he's just pouring wrath out on humility, Jesus heroically jumps in front of the bullet and takes that wrath upon himself. But when you look at Old Testament prophecy, when you look at how clearly this was the plan from the beginning, it's much more like in the community that is God, in the Trinity itself, the idea was, how are we going to deal with sin? And God himself said, how about I take the wrath instead of them? This is not some like 
last minute ditch effort to save humanity. This is God so loves the world that he sent his only son so that we not, might not experience this cup of wrath, but Jesus instead. And so as Jesus sits and prays and forms habits of relational prayer, of submissive prayer with the Father, what an advantage we have that he has already taken. We don't have to pray, God, would you remove your wrath? Because it's been removed. The last thing about this cup, though, is that even though it was the plan from the beginning, it still required Jesus' will. As we try to figure out man's choices and God's sovereignty, it's easy to kind of like see, well, this was, this was God's plan, and Jesus, so let's talk about the immutability of God, and let's talk about the perfection of Christ, and all this stuff, and we can forget that, no, actually, Jesus is praying because he has a choice to make. In a very real way, Jesus is not cheating, but rather Jesus is making a choice to submit himself to the Father. This wasn't just a sacrifice. Clearly, this is Jesus' sacrifice, but this is more, this is a reversal of the curse of Eden. Jesus still has to do what Adam could not. Don't give in to temptation. In this time of trial, Keep your attention on the Father. Jesus still has to do what the sacrificial system could not, provide a permanent source of atonement. Not that it would be yearly, weekly, new moon, feasts, organize our whole lives around, um, uh, around atoning for our sin, but rather we can organize our whole lives around the atonement that was once and for all. The love of God and the holiness of God both have to be satisfied for God to have what He wants, which is a relationship with us. So it is the cup of God's wrath that Jesus must endure on our behalf. And how does Jesus endure the cup of God's wrath? Submission. Obedience. Prayer. How human. This is not something you can't do. In fact, this is something we're called to do. Submission to the Father. Obedience to the Father. Prayer. So we, I talked about that chiasm, that little idea sandwich of, of Jesus' prayer. We make our whole lives that. <clears throat> we start with God. It's your will I'm seeking. I'm not trying to use prayer as a way to bend God's arm behind his back so he has to do what I want. But rather, God, it is your will I'm seeking. And let me tell you, from my limited perspective, here's the way I see things. And yet, God, if I have to choose between getting what I want or being in line with your will, may your will be done in my life. Not as an afterthought, not as, not as, so God, I really want a Slurpee and a chili dog to get today, but if it's your will, I eat broccoli, I guess that's okay. But rather to say, God, what I actually truly want is your will to run rampant in my life. That's what I want, I just don't know it. I just don't know how to do it. Submission, obedience, prayer. 
Do you see how different that is from surrounding ourselves with stuff, money, and status? It's just a completely different idea of preparing for trial. Paul in 2 Corinthians would say, I prayed three times, and the, time, and the answer every time was, your grace is sufficient. The early church, they learned from Jesus' example and put put flesh on this for us in many ways. James is going to say, this is where maturity comes from, that there's not going to be Christian maturity without Christian endurance. Are you with me? There's not going to be Christian maturity without Christian perseverance. That's just how it works. As we follow the model of Jesus in the garden, we mature. We grow up in Christ. Romans 8, imprisonment and beatings get called light and momentary afflictions. Did God help Jesus in the garden? Does God show up? Does He love His Son enough to... Yeah, even an angel shows up and strengthens Him. So God in His love, even in this very unique instance of Jesus submitting Himself to the will of the Father. While we have this picture of, of, of God and His relationship with Jesus, it might be deficient if we don't see how much God loves Jesus. God is not like, well, Jesus, this was the plan. Get wrecked. You're going to the cross. No, rather, Jesus is going to the cross and God is with Him in help the whole way. This is what Paul said too. That I prayed, but God's grace was what was enough. Not my answer prayer. Joel Green's a, a Luke scholar that I like a lot. He said this, the way to remain triumphant. Who wants to live triumphant lives in Christ? Victory, me and you and all of us. We want victory. We want triumph. Let's go get it. I'm all for it. <clears throat> the way to remain triumphant if we measure triumphant as persistent obedience to the divine will in times of trial is through persistent, earnest, submissive prayer. So we're going to unpack that a little bit, but can I just say it as plainly as possible? If you want to live victorious lives in Christ, you got to learn to pray submissively to God. It's the only way. <clears throat> so let's do unpack what Dr. Green says. If you want a triumphant life. We all do. Well, we have to say, what do we mean by victory? What do we mean by triumph? What do you mean by a victorious Christian life? Do we mean ease of life? Is it the Christian that has lots of free time and whose handicap on the golf course is consistently going down and who everybody smiles at and bows as they enter the room? Is that what we mean by victorious life? Is that the guy we're looking at and going, wow, that's a victorious life in Christ? Or maybe victory in Christ means um, lots of miraculous stories. Oh, I got victory because God did a miracle in my life. Remember, we're not against miracles. We're Baptocostals around here. We're all for God doing whatever He wants to do. We're all, we're all fine with that. But is that what we mean when we say, I'm praying for victory? It just means miracles? God fix it? If God fixes enough things, you say that's a victorious life? Or maybe it's success in ministry. You know, maybe it's like number of 
people you've led to the Lord or your Sunday school classes. 58-year-olds in it now. That'd be a heck of a victory. Good, good for you. <laughs> Those are all wonderful things. Hope we experience them all. But what if we measured victory in terms of diminishing sin and increasing fruit? What if what victorious life meant was a, a life that is submitted to God? What if by victorious life we meant we live lives of confession and forgiveness, of kindness, of self-control, of peace? This is available. You could live a victorious life in Christ if you mean, I want to live a life where I sin less and I'm more like Jesus. That's there for you. Well, what do we mean by trials? Let's be realistic. In, this, in, 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 this, in the life of Jesus, nobody's making Jesus do anything. You know, Jesus isn't praying because he's in poverty or he's hungry or that life isn't going well. The trial that he has on his knees, the thing that makes Jesus sweat drops like blood is the pain that will surely come if he is obedient to the will of the Father. Sometimes, even for Jesus, it was very difficult to be obedient to the will of the Father. But that is what He's defining as victory. What He wants is not removal of pain. What He wants is submission to God. And if you want that, it's there for you. You remember Hebrews 12? If you don't remember Hebrews 12, I quote it almost every Sunday. Um, but that it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross, scorning at shame, set down at the right hand of the Father. It was for the joy set before him. What could that joy be except relationship with us? Which is bonkers, mind-boggling. That is bananas. That Jesus was like, I want a human family so badly that I'm willing to go to the cross. But this is the testimony of Scripture. Here's the question back. Is it for the joy set before us that we will be obedient to him? Is, are, are, are we planning on experiencing so much joy? What I really want in my life is a, is, a, is a relationship with God. What I really want in my life is a loving and open relationship with Jesus. And I want it so bad that I'm willing to just say no to whatever temptation comes because sin is in the way. I've got to get rid of everything that encumbers and the sin that clings so closely and run with perseverance the race marked out for me. Jesus loved us so much, he was willing to be obedient to God even to death. Or is, is the joy set before us? I feel like a lot of times the joy that Christians are going for is the worldliest life that won't tick God off. But what if the joy set before us is, you mean I could have a relationship with the Father? I could have a relationship with God no matter what's going on? That's the joy. That's what I want. So what do you mean by victory? What do you mean by trials? And what's our plan for this victorious life? Jesus' plan that Joel Green outlines is persistent, earnest, and submissive prayer. You don't need to learn to build habits of submissive prayer because you're earning Awana points in heaven. It's not the way it works. Although if you want a badge, we'll make badges. That'd be fine. I would like one. I would like my per persistent prayer badge, please. That sounds very wonderful. If I could get a vest, do they make a wanna vest in 2XL? That's the question. 
<laughs> That's what we need to know. It's not why we do it. We do it because, we don't do it because developing a life of prayer is in line with what God has told us to do. No, rather, we develop a life of prayer because it is in line with what we actually want, and that is sweet relationship with Jesus, even to the point where in times of trial, I won't fall to temptation. Everybody wants a calling. Nobody wants a cup. Oh, that's good. I wish I made that up. We all want a calling. We all want to know that God has called us to some great work. We want to do great things for Jesus. But very few people want this garden experience. May I commend to you, <clears throat> coming to church and having the pastor say, I would commend prayer to you. It's probably not a shock, but in a fresh way, could I commend to you not just prayer, but prayer intended to be the means of submission in our lives, not as a means to get stuff, but as a means to submission. If all you do in your prayer life is over and over align your will with the will of God, you will live a more victorious, peaceful, joyous life. Is there enough joy in a relationship with Jesus that we would do the work of submitting to Him, putting to death sin in our lives, taking seriously prayer, praying, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil? Well, very quickly, <clears throat> there's the arrest. And we talked about this at length last week, but this is what victory looked like in Jesus' life. Victory didn't look like, and then the arresting officers came, and Jesus all of a sudden was in a gi, and he had ninja swords, and, you know, Jesus roughly translates to John Wick. That's just not, that's just not what happened. Victory meant obedience. What it means to experience a victorious life in Christ is it's a synonym with an obedient life in Christ. So Judas betrays him with a kiss and he goes, hey, what's going on? And sword fight and put, his, put the guy's ear back together. And then in verse 51, Jesus says, no more of this. And he touched the guy's ear and healed him. No more of what? No more violence. No more fighting instead of submitting. No more pretending that Jesus headed to the cross is a loss. This is the win. How about this? No more of the followers of Jesus getting in the way of Jesus' plan. Obedience. Faithfulness. This is victorious life. And then there's this little section about who actually came to arrest Jesus. You have Roman soldiers in your brain, don't you? I know I do. It's not Roman soldiers. Rather, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against us? And there might have been some Romans. They might have had some muscle with them. But he had, these are the people he addresses. Have you come out against us as, robber, uh, as against robbers with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, did you, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour 
and the power of darkness. That is so, that is the coolest line. Jesus is like, hey, tonight belongs to you. Sunday morning is going to be awesome, though. Chief priests, officers of the temple, the elders, these people should have been people of the light. They should have been the lighthouse that the nations would come streaming into the temple to worship Yahweh. And instead, they have acted in such a way that associates them with the powers of darkness. The snake is wounding the Son of Man. <laughs> the prophecy all the way back from Genesis 3 is, is happening this night. This is the hour that the selfishness of man and the forces of evil in the heavenly places are striking a blow. And we would go, that doesn't look like victory to me, but it looks like victory because Jesus is obedient. And if we could just get that in our head, it's not about how much ease we live in. It's not about how many prayer requests go our way. It is that we grow in obedience, in submission, in living a victorious life of doing what God says to do. This is what a victorious Christian life looks like. But Jesus is prepared. <laughs> He's been in prayer. He's prayed that he would submit his will to God's. The victory is sure. But of course, even a couple thousand years later, the forces of evil still rage in our time. Satan is defeated, but still fighting. Still using weapons like anger, still using weapons like outrage, still using weapons like pride and lust and fear and anger. And we just have to decide how the church is going to respond. There's not going to be a shortage. I don't think we're moving towards a time, at least in my lifetime, I don't think we're moving towards a time where everybody goes, let's stop listening to the national leaders and instead start listening to the faithful pastors. I just don't anticipate that. I wouldn't want that job. <laughs> I would stop being a pastor at that point, I think. I think we're living in times where we're constantly going to be given the temptation to lash back out in anger. We're constantly going to be given the temptation to lash back out in outrage, to give in to lust, to give in to pride, to give in to greed. I think these temptations are going to be ever-present in our life, and we got to decide how we respond. Will it be with swords and anger and outrage, or will we pray like Jesus? Define success not as our comfort, but as holiness. You know, our, the world that we're living in doesn't need a powerful church. It needs a holy one. Are we going to become people of prayer? Trials and temptations are surely ahead for us too. What habits are you building? How are you praying? And do you define victory in your life as obedience to God's will? Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be with you this morning. Lord, I pray that we would see the world like you see it, 
that you would keep us from temptation, and that you would grow from this room faithful people who want to pray like you. In Jesus' name, amen.